Hi, this is Center for Anxiety, and you're listening to A More Connected Life. In this podcast, we're here to talk about the very real struggles of mental disorders and how they can ultimately lead to greater insight, resilience, and connection. Based on current research, clinical wisdom, and first-person accounts, we will all learn how to live a more connected life. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of A More Connected Life. I'm your host, Ethan, and today I have with me Dr. Rebecca Holzer. Dr. Holzer is a senior clinician and supervisory psychologist here at Center for Anxiety, and Dr. Holzer specializes in CBT, ERP, and DBT for adolescents and adults. Dr. Holzer also treats a wide variety of conditions, including anxiety, OCD, depression, and trauma. Welcome to the show, Dr. Holzer. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's great having you. Um, and as you know, today we're going to be talking a little bit more about data and the role that data plays in, you know, evidence-based therapy. So I just wanted to start by asking if you could maybe explain what evidence-based therapy is and you know how it may differ from other types of therapy. Sure, evidence-based treatment. It's really a concept that true across all different kinds of treatments, whether it's medical or psychological, et cetera. Uh, The general idea across the board is that we are trying to incorporate the best available research along with clinical experiences and patient preferences into our clinical practice so that we can make informed patient care decisions. It's different from other types of therapy, I think, because we know that it works. And there's, in fact, a whole series of books of treatment manuals that are called treatments that work. Um, And so when we're practicing that kind of treatment, um, I can practice it and kind of rely on the notion that this has been backed by science and there is a method to what I'm doing rather than maybe some other therapies that are driven more by, let's say, more intuition or um, maybe have more of the patient preferences and clinical experience part, but less of the research element. So I'm constantly juggling those three elements as I'm practicing treatment with my patients. Got it. Um, and I think that you mentioned a really interesting point, which is, you know, when you do evidence-based treatment, uh, these are treatments that have been backed by research. Uh, and by data, you know, and so one thing that we're talking about today is data. And so from that, I'd like to just ask, what role does data typically play in effective therapy in general, or evidence-based treatments specifically? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I guess we should start by identifying what data means, right? So we have data kind of in the scientific, um, more rigorous sense, numbers and scores, meeting certain thresholds, et cetera. And then we also have the data that might not be as quantifiable, but it is qualitative. And one of the things that I like to do in my work at CFA is incorporate both. So one thing that we administer to each of our patients, both when they come in and ongoing throughout treatment, is something called psych survey, which is a series of psychological surveys, as it sounds. Um, and these are completed online. They're pretty useful questions to help us understand what patients are going through. Sometimes 
you can get at it a little bit more through our actual verbal interactions with each other, sometimes not. And I can talk about that a little bit later. So essentially we have both standardized measures, kind of like what I was just mentioning earlier, meeting certain thresholds, having certain scores. And then we also have some subjective measures that are also incorporated into psych surveys, like how much progress do you think you've made in treatment since you started? Do you feel like the homework was helpful for you? How much shame are you experiencing on a scale from one to seven, let's say? So um, there's definitely an element there where a patient can kind of input their own perception of how they're doing. Great. Uh, I think you made a really great distinction between standardized and subjective measures, and I can see the difference between the two. I was just curious from your perspective as a clinician, you know, what's the type of information you get when you look at a client's standardized measures versus the type of information you get when you look at a client's subjective measures? Mm -hmm. Yeah, really good question. So the standardized measures that we use are questions that I wouldn't necessarily ask off the bat, let's say, especially the ones that we administered intake. So for example, um, we have a series of questions related to childhood sexual abuse. We have a series of questions related to how much a person uses the internet and whether that borders on what could potentially be an internet addiction or maybe some different types of behaviors that they aren't necessarily uh, going to admit in their first intake session, but will admit on paper. So I think that having the combination of both makes it really useful. And then what I try to do is I turn that into a conversation. And so I'll say, okay, I know we didn't get to this question necessarily during our interview, but I am kind of curious. There was a question here that you answered in this, in this way. I'm wondering if you could tell me a little more about that. And that kind of opens the door to that broader conversation that I wouldn't necessarily get without having those questions written down. Got it. Got it. Okay. So it sounds to me like what you're saying is, at least with these more subjective measures, those kind of uh, can open a conversation into, you know, the conversations, the important conversations that happen through therapy about why a client is feeling a certain way uh, or why a client is struggling at that given moment. Uh, did I get that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Uh, and we've kind of been talking a little bit more about you know, standardized measures, subjective measures. Uh, so I want to go into a bit more detail here. As a clinician, what are some measures that are important to monitor, you know, when you are looking to collect data to help improve a client's therapeutic experience? The standard measures that we, so we, we give a bunch of measures, like I've been saying all along, right? So at intake, we administer quite a bunch. And then throughout treatment, we're pretty consistent in administering questions about depression and anxiety. Um, and those are, I always check my, my psych surveys before I see somebody assuming that they've done it. And it kind of gives me a little bit of a finger on the pulse of the, let's say, how, how sad have you been this week? Um, how anxious have you been this week? And again, that kind of tells me, have we had a difficult week or has it been a little bit calmer for you? We also um, ask people questions about whether they've used drugs or alcohol. And again, that gives me more insight into something I wouldn't necessarily ask if it wasn't something I was already aware of. And the other thing is that I always like to look at risk items. So let's say somebody's at risk of harming themselves or someone else, again, that may or may not disclose that in the session. 
at least now I have a heads up and I can say this and I saw this here and I'm just kind of curious if we could talk about that a little bit more. So it's not as taboo as it would have been just coming out of nowhere. Got it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It sounds like, you know, one of the most important things I'm taking away from that answer is that the measures that are asked to clients um, or included in these questionnaires, they're, they're sort of dynamic and they're sort of, you know, you ask questions uh, somewhat in a standardized frame. You know, you're always going to ask about depression and anxiety, but um, you're also asking questions only if you feel like they're applicable to the individual client. And so I'm wondering if you could maybe walk us through an example, you know, of a client in which you use data to help provide effective therapy, you know, from these questionnaires. One of my favorite stories about psych surveys is one of my earlier years at CSA, we had administered one of these intake surveys, as we call them, which is, like I said, kind of like the bigger batch of questionnaires that we administer. We don't necessarily administer them every week, but we do at the beginning. And at the time I had been working with an individual who was a pretty prominent figure in his world. And, you know, for all intents and purposes was, was, was kind of a, a pretty high powered figure. When we administered these like surveys, the question about childhood sexual abuse came up and he had answered yes to it. Eventually I got to asking him, yeah, I noticed that you endorsed having had a history of abuse. Would you be comfortable sharing more about that? Is that something that you'd like to address here? He said, yeah, well, I've never talked about it before with anyone. Really? Not even parents, wife, anything. I mean, he had been married for probably 20 years or so by then, and had never disclosed this to anyone. And so then I asked him, wow, you've been holding this for so long. And I can't help but wonder, what made you decide to, uh, to answer um, and tell me about this today? And his answer was, because you asked. That's all it was. And sometimes it just takes the question. Great. Yeah, I think that's a very, very important example and story in terms of the power that uh, collecting data, the power that having these questionnaires available to clients beforehand can have on the impact of therapy. Of course, sometimes it can be easier for clients to bring up things they're seeking help for of their own volition uh, without being prompted. But I do think that these questionnaires provide a kind of channel or a kind of opportunity for clients to bring things up in therapy or provides opportunity for clients to let their clinicians know that this is something that they they may want to talk about. So that's a really important example. Thank you for sharing that. I think that you've already mentioned this a few times now, but it sounds like with these questionnaires or surveys where you're collecting data as a clinician, not only are these used, you know, internally to to help you come to a session in a more prepared way, but these are also sometimes things that you explicitly address with clients. You know, if you say, hey, I noticed that you answered so-and-so on this question. So I was just curious, what do you think is the benefit of addressing things openly with clients when they're answering these questions, as opposed to, to keeping things in your own mind coming into the session? So I guess the easiest to the answer is um, I always ask permission 
And if somebody says, you know, I don't really want to talk about that, it'll be fine. But to, to speak to your question on a deeper level, even just them, you know, self-administering the questions, just going answering them themselves can give them insight because they actually have to stop and ask themselves, you know, how am I doing today? How have I been doing this week? I never really stopped to think about it until this point. I mean, how many of us actually stop and say, how has this week really been for me? Most of us are kind of just on going, going, going mode, and we don't necessarily take a step back to look at the bigger picture like we've been talking about. And so even if they're just completing those measures for themselves and we may or may not bring them up in session, my hope is that it gives them a little bit of insight into their own experiences. Sometimes what happens is we talk about those and it kind of validates their experiences. Sometimes answering those questions can help support a diagnosis that they've been looking for and never were able to find. And on the other hand, I think sometimes what happens is we have people who kind of check off everything. You know, I'm feeling super depressed, I'm feeling super anxious, and I have all of these symptoms going on. And what that tells me is a few things when those situations happen. You know, again, I'm over-endorsing, meaning you've got everything in the book. Sometimes that is true. Sometimes people do come in with everything in the book. Sometimes people feel like they have to tell you that they're reporting everything in the book in order to feel heard. And when that happens, I don't necessarily go through all the questions together with them. Because I realize that you probably are just asking for help somehow. You may or may not actually know what's going on. It just feels like everything is going on. And so I might not go through that question by question with them. But it also tells me like, wow, you're in a lot of distress right now. You're feeling really helpless and feeling really overwhelmed. And just that conversation in itself, without even mentioning psych surveys, can be really fruitful. Yeah. No, I think that's really important. It sounds like you spoke to to both pieces as well, you know, again, how answering these questions and providing this data to clinicians can help both yourself as a clinician, you know, come into a session and get a get a better sense of where a client is at, as well as clients coming to awareness about things that maybe they wouldn't actively be thinking about. And so I want to touch on that latter piece a little bit more because part of this podcast is trying to look a little bit more at when someone struggles with their mental health. Of course, it's something that's very real and very challenging. We also want to examine what are what are the positives that can come from challenges with your mental health or struggling with your mental health. You touched on it a little bit with the awareness piece, but just more explicitly as a question, you know, how do completing these questionnaires and surveys and providing data benefit clients themselves? I think that there are a few things, a few benefits that that our patients or clients can get. One is the insight, again, because they're asking themselves, like, how do I really feel right now? Which we don't necessarily always have the luxury of doing. So just that knowledge for themselves is, is, I think, beneficial. In addition to that, I think that it kind of creates a sense of accountability and treatment because they know that they have to work on filling out those measures every single week. And it kind of makes them feel a little bit more prepared for their sessions. They kind of know what they want to work on. It kind of keeps their their treatment at the forefront of their minds. Opening the door for conversations in our weekly, actually in the intake one too, our psych surveys have a section where we ask, is there anything additional you'd like the therapist to know? And so 
that's our chance to really say, well, what's really on my mind? What do I really want to address today? And then again, you know, if we have the longitudinal data over the course of time, patients can really see their progress in numbers, in concrete, in graphical form. Yeah, I think that's super important for you to kind of clarify because, again, this data collection, while it sounds like, I guess, more clearly it benefits clinicians in terms of just being aware of how their clients are feeling coming into sessions, this is also something very, very beneficial on the client side as well. And I think something that is very important to emphasize for clients, it's not only something that you know they're providing to their clinicians, but also something that brings new benefit into their own life. And so I want to shift gears a little bit as well, because another piece of this podcast is talking about connection. And so with the completion of these questionnaires or surveys and providing data to clinicians, I wanted to ask you in your own experience, how have completion of these questionnaires or surveys helped build more of a connection between you and your clients? I think what I would say to that is it's another form of communication. I, I just see it like as another form of communication besides what we're actually talking about, you know, physically talking about in the therapy room. This is another way of communicating. So like I said, hopefully before each session, sometimes after sessions, sometimes in between sessions, it's, it's a way for us to communicate with each other. I don't use it technically in, in my practice, but one of the things that we have on psych surveys specifically is something called a diary card. The general idea is that when patients are filling out their what we call diary cards, it's essentially kind of filling out a diary of what I've been feeling each day. And in the psych surveys platform, we can see those them filling out those diary cards each day. So we can see when they've logged in, how many times they've looked at the same question. Are they filling this out every day? Or are they just kind of all cramming it in right before the session? Kind of gives us, again, more information on how patients are doing both within and outside of the session. And then, of course, that, that makes sense that getting that sense of how a patient is doing inside and outside of session can lead to more connection just overall. I think it's a really important point that you made about it just being a different way of communicating. Some people may be more comfortable kind of laying it all out in the therapy room during their session, but other times some individuals may need to be prompted more or maybe be asked the question specifically in order to answer how they're truly feeling, sort of in that example you gave with the client you were working with and the childhood sexual abuse. One thing I wanted to touch on as well is I know that the topic of this podcast episode so far has been pretty geared towards individuals in therapy with evidence-based treatment, administering these questionnaires, collecting data. These are all things that would be experienced by clients that are actually seeing a therapist. So one question I wanted to ask you to kind of zoom out a little bit is how can individuals in their everyday life benefit from the ideas that we've talked about so far? Questionnaires, providing information. The ideas that we're talking about today, I, I don't see these as ideas that can only benefit people in therapy. There's some co underlying concepts here that I think could really benefit just individuals in their day-to-day -day life. So it's a bit of a broad question, but just curious, you know, if you had any thoughts on how individuals in their everyday life could kind of take advantage of the information we're talking about here. 
what came to mind for me as you were asking this question was if anybody has ever been to the doctor's office and let's say you're experiencing pain and they ask you or they show you a pain scale and they say from zero to 10, how much pain are you experiencing right now? And then, you know, you have the little smiley faces next to each, each number, just something like that is a really good place to start. You know, how's my mood today? You know, smiley face to sad face. And there are actually a bunch of different ways of monitoring or tracking your own psychological processes, if you will. There are plenty of apps out there that do different variations of this, journaling or just kind of a quick mood check. You can program them so that they come in as reminders at different points throughout the day. And so you can constantly kind of check in with yourself. You can use them to communicate to other people. You know, this is how I've been feeling lately. This is what my mood has been on that scale from zero to 10. Yeah, I think that that's a great example. And I think that looking at contexts beyond therapy, like the doctor's office, like you mentioned, or journaling apps or, or anything really, I think illustrates a broader point. Any question in, in any space can be kind of seen as an opportunity for you to check in with yourself and, and to answer honestly. So like you said, the doctor's office in, in other medical settings, but, but even if a family member like reaches out and says like, how are you doing? I think we're all so conditioned to say, I'm good. <laughs> How are you these days? I think a lot of the concepts we're talking about today can really be extended into just day-to-day -day interactions with your friends or families. Anytime somebody asks you a question about your well-being, you know, that's an opportunity for you to connect with them more and also for you to check in with your own well-being and mental health. That's a really great point about kind of broadening the context there. On that note, the last thing I wanted to kind of ask here was how can filling out questionnaires, surveys, or, or just answering questions in general lead someone to feel more connected with the people around them? So not necessarily just with you and your clinician, but if you're answering these types of questions, can that lead to more connection with just the people in your everyday life? I think in, in those cases, it might require sort of the added step of having to kind of express that to other people. In other words, nobody's going to know how you're feeling unless you tell them. Hopefully, the way that you'll get there is by somebody asking you, like you said, how are you doing and looking for a genuine response, which may or may not be, okay, I'm great. One thing that these questionnaires can also do is kind of, like I said earlier, give you insight into which areas of your life you feel like are the ones that you'd want people to know about. So for example, let's say I don't exactly know what's going on, but I know that my sleep has been kind of off lately, or I keep feeling like anxious, but I'm not really sure why, or I just can't get past thinking about X, Y, and Z. And I think that's something I want to talk to you or someone else about. So once people are able to answer questions themselves, then they can use that as a springboard to start the conversation with someone that they feel or hope will support them, whether it's a therapist, a friend, a mentor, whoever it is. You know, so they need to be in the context of therapy, um, just whatever feels comfortable to communicate. Yeah. Again, I think that's a, a really great point. And it sounds like we've kind of gone full circle a little bit. You know, these questions be it on surveys or just, you know, in the context of everyday life serve as 
an opportunity for clients or just individuals in general to gain awareness about what's really bothering them or, or what's really at the forefront of their mind when it comes to their well-being. So again, I appreciate you emphasizing that and bringing that up. I think those are all the questions that I had today. Is there anything that you wanted to you know, discuss when it comes to evidence-based treatment or data that you feel like we didn't get a chance to cover today? Yeah, um, I think we talked a lot about data on an individual level. Just talking about evidence-based practice in general, I think what I would say is that there are some forms of evidence-based practices that we know work. Kind of like I said, that treatments that work theories are all backed by a pretty sound basis of scientific literature. At the same time, it's always evolving. So even though you know some things are evidence-based practice now, maybe we'll find that we need to tweak it along the way, which does happen sometimes. Or there's a whole new form of treatment that when you pit one evidence-based treatment against another, you find that they both work. And all of a sudden you have a whole new option. So evidence-based practice is, is a dynamic process on the broader level as well as on the individual level. I think that's a great point. And I think it's very important to discuss evidence-based treatment because we did focus a bit more on data and, and questionnaires in our conversation today. It's a really good point about evidence-based treatment and really just research overall. Research is constantly evolving and who knows what types of changes or modifications in the current evidence-based treatments will be made 10, 20 years, 50 years down the line. If anybody is interested in specifically evidence-based practices for mental health treatment, there is a division of the American Psychological Association or the APA that is specifically dedicated towards promoting evidence-based treatment for particular conditions. And that is Division 12 of the American Psychological Association. Go online, look up their website, take a look at what treatment possibilities are out there for whatever you might be looking for. Again, really great point. I think that that resource will be really helpful, especially to our listeners who aren't as well-versed in evidence-based treatment. Yeah, just want to say thank you. Thank you for your time, Dr. Holzer, and for all that information. Really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing all of your wisdom with us and hope to talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Ethan. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for listening to A More Connected Life. Visit centerforanxiety.org for more information about everything we talked about today and to connect with us. Tune in next time as we discuss more ways to live a more connected life.